Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Hey, are you believing God for a word this morning? Okay. You know, I, I believe there is a, a correlation between expectation and God's revelation. And so if you believe God for a word this morning, I really believe this, that God's going to speak to you. And so there, there's something there that happens with expectation. And so today we're going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. And while you guys turn there in your Bibles, I want to kind of set up the context in which we find ourselves today. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been taking a look at the famous last words of Jesus. And last week, Andrew Albritton did a phenomenal job talking about the forgiveness, where Jesus forgives those that are persecuting him, forgiving those that are mocking him. Today, we're taking a look at the last words of Jesus, and the words that we're looking at are, today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, typically, Pastor Eddie is a three-point message speaker, and so for myself, I typically have no point to my message. And so I'm trying to walk in the shoes of Pastor Eddie this morning, so bear with me. So the three points that we have today are, number one, how to miss Jesus, number two is how to see Jesus, and then finally, we will see how to receive Jesus. So if you're there in Luke chapter 23, uh, let's uh, get ready for God's word. It says this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. And the rulers, they scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him and offering him sour wine, saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that read, this is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Would you pray with me one more time, asking that God would speak to us today through his word? Father, I thank you for uh, these moments that we get to share as a community and as a church. But Father, more than anything, I pray that you would just get me out of the way and we would be able to see who your son is. Jesus, I pray that you would be glorified, you would be magnified, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would point to you. And Jesus, we would see your grace and goodness toward us. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, growing up, um, I was a military brat and also a uh, military officer. And uh, for myself, I always loved a good challenge. Anybody out there, you're like, I love a good challenge. Now, I, back in the summer of 2011, I found a great challenge. It was the sport of triathlon. And if you're unfamiliar with the sport of triathlon, essentially what it is is a run a cycle or you ride your bike and then finally unfortunately for me there was this thing called a swim and so 
as naive and a non-swimming 20-year-old as I was, I thought, hey, what's the big deal? How hard could it be? Let's sign up for a triathlon. So that morning, I show up at the transition area ready to start my race, which was beginning right in the heart of Nashville. And what, where is there right in the heart of Nashville is this river called the Cumberland River, and it's notorious for its strong currents. Somebody touch a neighbor and say, watch out. I'll say it with some attitude today, say, watch out. There's a strong current that's there. And so being the naive 20-year-old, I thought, hey, you know what would be great this morning? Even though my heart rate is already incredibly elevated, already super excited for the race, I know what I'll do. I'm gonna take a bunch of caffeine gels. This will be great. So I take three or four caffeine gels, and each one of these gels, just to put it into perspective, is the equivalent of about three cups of coffee. So you can tell, at this point in time, my heart rate is incredibly elevated. By the time my heat is ready to start, I literally can feel my skin tingling as I make my way toward the water. I then get ready to jump into the Cumberland River with an already strong current, and my heart begins to have heart palpitations. Somebody touch your neighbor and say, uh-oh. Things were in trouble. So I jump into the river, and what happens from that point forward is a story of exhaustion and stupidity, where I experience near blackouts trying to make my way to the end of the swim, all in the name of good fun. How many know that when you're not prepared, the current will take you? The current will take you. Today, as stupid as that story is, and as naive as I was back then, how many know that that's so true of us today? Today in scripture, we come to this passage where Jesus is here on the cross, and with his last words, he says these beautiful things, but what surrounds him is a current and culture and a crowd. So the first point today that we're gonna look at is how to not get caught up in the current. So point number one is how to miss Jesus. The first way we miss him is in the current of the crowd. And the fact is this, is that it's easy to miss Jesus. It's easy to miss Jesus. Look at verse number 35, if you would. It says, then the people, meaning those that were just bystanders, people that were walking by on the main thoroughfare, says that they were watching by, or they were, they were watching, they stood and just looked. Now imagine, if you would, for a moment, an innocent person being murdered. Justice was not being done. Here's an innocent man on a cross. People stood there and they watched. Not only that, you see rulers, they scoffed at him. These were the people that were stirring up the crowd, the, the current and culture in that area. They were stirring it up. And look in verse 35, it says that the rulers, well, they scoffed at him. Not only them, but in verse 36, it said the soldiers, they mocked him. Literally, everyone around Jesus is hurling insults his way. And to make matters worse, this is absolutely crazy. In Mark chapter 15, in verse number 32, it says not only the people around him, but also those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I mean, how much energy do you have to have in the middle of your crucifixion to look to your left and say, you know what, I'm going to hurl a few insults this guy's way. They were caught up even while crucified in the current of the crowd. Everything was pointed at shaming, mocking, and insulting Jesus. So the question then is, why? Why was that the case? We're going to look at two different crowds here in the way that we can miss Jesus. The first crowd is the religious crowd. 
These are Bible believers. They, they would have been believers in the Torah. These would have been the Pharisees. The second crowd would have been the secular crowd. This would have been those of the Roman soldiers, those that really didn't know the law and the prophets. They were the secular crowd. So let's look at the religious crowd first, verse number 35. It says, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. What the Pharisees are quoting here is actually from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. They're actually quoting a prophecy that God gave to Isaiah to point to the coming Messiah, the one that was to come. And they quote this back to him because look what it says here in 42.1. It says, behold, my servant whom I uphold. I mean, how in the world can Jesus be upheld if he's here on a cross? How is God protecting him if others are murdering him? Because it says, behold, this is my servant whom I'm uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. They're saying, God wouldn't allow his chosen to be treated this way. God wouldn't allow us to murder you in this way, Jesus. And so there's this mocking back and forth. They're like, look at you. God doesn't love you. I wonder if you walked in this morning and you felt that lie from the enemy as well. God doesn't love you. Chosen. Cares for you? What are you talking about? This was the mock of the religious crowd. Not only do we see the religious crowd, we also see the secular crowd. Look at their criteria here for Jesus. Verse number 36. They have a different metric. It says, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are, underline this if you got your Bible, the king. That's their criteria. If you are the king of the Jews, then you should save yourself. But Jesus, you're not saving yourself because where's your army, Jesus? Where's your power? Where's your influence? Where's your majesty? You're up here all by yourself in your shame. Look at you, Jesus, the king. You can't even control yourself. How interesting it is that we have two groups of people who can't agree on anything, yet coming, to agree on, yep, coming together to agree on one thing, and that thing is that Jesus doesn't fit the criteria. Two diametrically opposed groups coming together with the same vicious intent. He's saying there's no power here. There's no love here. God's abandoned you. You're not the chosen one. He doesn't fit the zealots, he doesn't fit the Pharisees, he doesn't fit the soldiers, and he doesn't fit the rulers' criteria. All agree that Jesus can't be who he claimed to be. Back in 1999, one of the greatest sci-fi films of all time came out. The movie shows humanity is unknowingly trapped inside of a computer system where their bodies are used as a power source for machines. Uh, if you thought it was getting nerdy last week with Andrew, just get ready, okay? This movie was called The Matrix. And there in this movie, we see a man by the name of Neo, who is said to be, quote unquote, the one. And there in this matrix, he's rescued by this guy by the name of Morpheus. 
And right as they, they bring him in and they begin to do uh, all these tests to see if he is the one, a disgruntled coworker, a disgruntled member of the crew, he, he stops everything. And while they're still in the hard frame, this coworker comes over to him and he's going to kill Neo. And the thing that he says to him, as Neo is trapped inside the matrix, he goes, if Morpheus is right that Neo is quote unquote the one, then there's no way that I could kill him. Because how can he be the one if he's dead? Now moviegoers and filmmakers alike all agree on one thing. You, you can't be the one if you're dead, right? Because if he's dead, right, then roll the credits. The movie's over, nobody makes any money, right? Like you can't be the one. So spoiler alert from 1999, Neo is the one, okay? And this disgruntled coworker actually doesn't kill Neo, right? Because you can't be the one if he's dead. And so he makes it out and Neo saves humanity. I'm sorry if I ruined that for you. You can go back and watch it later. Uh, but the premise is this, right? You can't be the one if you're dead. You can't be the one. And so the crazy part is this, is that the gospel to human ears and eyes, it doesn't make any sense. Like, how can you be the Messiah if you're hanging on a cross? How can you be a king if you're living in defeat? How can you be a conqueror if you're facing your death? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And how many know that that's the gospel? Like, the idea that the chosen one would be a suffering servant. We literally sing this. We sing a man of sorrows, that he was stricken with grief. How can he be the one? It says that this suffering servant would offer forgiveness through his death. It makes no sense. It doesn't make sense to the self-righteous, to the religious crowd, and it doesn't make sense to the secular crowd. And that's why it's so easy, not only 2,000 years ago on that day to be swept away with the current of the crowd, but believe it or not, it's easy for us here today. It's easy to miss Jesus. Even today, I would dare say that the cross, well, it's hard to actually see. The secular world, many would say, they would say, well, I don't believe in the cross because the cross assumes that God is perfect and holy and he, de he demands a payment for sin. So when the secular world looks at the cross, they say, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I don't see that. Even today, that's the current of our culture. But it even goes with a religious crowd too, those that want to live their life by the rules in order to get into God's good favor. Not living from a position of salvation, but working for a position of salvation. The religious crowd often will say things like, well, I don't love the cross because it assumes a freeness to God's grace. No matter who you are or what you've done, you can be accepted so long as you come with your need. To human ears, it doesn't make any sense Christianity, friend, is not a religion of self-help. It is a divine rescue. It's so easy to miss Jesus in the crowd. The second way that we miss Jesus is that we miss him actually in our own circumstances. We miss him in our circumstances. Look at the criminal here in verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This man, he essentially, he has a test for Jesus. And he says, my test is my situation. If you are God, show up. If you're God, do something about my situation. Uh, if you're a churchgoer here today, you might say it this way. I have a felt need. 
okay? And I'm bleeding out, and I might die of asphyxiation soon. So Jesus, if you could come and help me, that'd be super terrific, all right? That's a Christian way to say it. Like, he's over here, and he's like, please, somebody help me. Because if you're God, there's no way that I would be on this cross. I really believe this, that one of the reasons we have trouble believing the gospel is this very criteria. That there are times in our life where we come into situations and we say, God, if you love me, if you're real, if you are who you say you are, you'll show up. And the problem is that what happens when he doesn't? What happens when the situation doesn't actually change? And what happens is we're forced to face a choice. All we know is that in our situation, we're hurting and he hasn't come through. God, where are you? I wonder, have you ever blamed God for the pain in your life, for the hurt or for the hardship? This is what we do with God. We come to God and we say, this is how I know that you're God. You'll agree with me. And we lower God to our level of understanding. Like somehow God is an omnipotent. Because again, what happens if he says no? Like what, what happens if he says, no, son, I'm, I'm not gonna get you off of that cross. I mean, he said it to Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says that he was praying and laboring. It says that he was sweating drops of blood, and he says, God, if, if there is any other way, would you get me out of this situation? God, if there's any other way to have this happen, please do something. Take the cup of wrath from me but not my will, yours be done. You see, there's something that happens in Jesus where God the Father says, no, son, I'm not gonna take you off that cross because I have a plan and a purpose for it. I have a purpose for your pain. He says, no, son, I'm not. I wonder how many are here today and you're asking the same question. Like, God, would you heal my daughter? God, there's this cancer that's still inside of me and I've been praying and I've been asking and I've been laboring and I've been working and you haven't done anything, God. Where are you at? Get me off of here. There's a business owner that's here today and you're praying like, God, we're gonna go bankrupt if you don't show up. What's gonna happen? God, show yourself. Get me out of here. And we bring this criteria to God, and we act just like the thief on the cross. Because what we do is this, is we put God on trial, and we become the judge. If you are God, get me out of here. I found that in these moments in my life, where I find myself literally between a rock and a hard pit place, that I come back to these moments and I, I remember that even Jesus labored before the Father. And I say things like, God, I am finite and I am small and I can't see past the moment in front of me and I know that you are infinite and you are good and you can see because you don't exist in time and space and so God, I'm asking you, would you move the mountain in front of me? God, this is a situation, I, I need you to move it. And so often what God does is I sit in that season for months. Maybe you've been sitting in a season like that for years. 
and you're praying, God, would you, would you just move this thing, move the mountain? And ever so sweetly in my own life, I, I know so many times God will say, son, I'm not gonna move the mountain because I wanna move the mountain in you. I'm not gonna take you off that cross because there's purpose behind your pain. I wonder if you've missed Jesus today because you've brought your criteria and Jesus doesn't fit. You know, today at the end of the service, we're gonna have a time of extended prayer and you know what, maybe that's you. Maybe you say, Ben, I've been praying over this thing. I've been praying over the cross that I bear. I've been praying over the mountain that I want to move. I've been praying in faith and nothing's happened. You know what, maybe today at the end of the service, you need to come up here and get with a pastor and you need to pray. Or maybe God's speaking to you right now and he's saying, you know what, I don't wanna move the mountain, but I wanna do it in you. Maybe this is your day to come and pray and say, God, I humble myself before you. It's so easy to miss Jesus in the midst of our pain and suffering, in the midst of the current of the crowd and the criteria. We can be swept away from seeing Jesus. The second point today is how do we actually see Jesus? How do we see Jesus? Mark chapter 15, verse 32, it says that those who were crucified with him, they also reviled him. So you have both sets of criminals on the right and the left side of the cross, both hurling condemnation to Jesus, both railing at him. But then suddenly, something happens. In between verse number 39 and verse number 40, something happens with the thief on the cross. Look what it says here in verse 40. It says, but the other, meaning the criminal, the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? But we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. What's happening here? Often when I read this text, I often think of like, you know, the, the movie Aladdin, you remember the movie Aladdin? Like Aladdin and his friend Abu, right? The monkey, they're just hanging out in Agrabah, right? And they're just trying to get some bread, trying to make their way. Like, yeah, it's petty theft. It's not that big of a deal. I'm just trying to survive. And these mean guards are coming after me. That's not who we're reading about here. In fact, most scholars believe that these two men on the right and the left side of the cross were actually the right and the left-hand men of a man by the name of Barabbas, a man who was a rebel against Rome, a man who not only wanted to overthrow the Roman uh, powers that had overtaken Israel, but what made them and their group even worse was that in the name of political uh, freedom, they came in and raped and pillaged. They came in after the attack on the Romans and took from the very people they were supposed to be freeing. Literally, the name thief means taker. Here were these men, these were not some petty thieves, these were men who were so bad that Rome said, I can't rehabilitate you, but I have to make an example of you. I can't have you be a slave in the Roman Empire, I've gotta make you an example for all to see. That's how bad these guys were. And so when the thief, he says these words, he says, we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. Friend, he's not referring to his actions against Rome. He's referring to his actions against God. Because there's no way that he would say, it's just that I die at the hands of Rome. This is their whole platform. 
The whole platform was to overthrow Rome that had overtaken Israel. When he says, I'm receiving what I deserve, he's saying, it's not Rome, it's God. I see now who I truly am. And what, what we find is this, is that the very first thing that has to happen for us to see Jesus is that we have to concede our own sin. The thief on the cross, he finds and sees Jesus and he says, my sin is before me. Do you remember this with the story of David and Bathsheba where he sins against the nation of Israel. He sins against Uriah. He sins against Bathsheba. And what does he say in that beautiful psalm? He says, against you and you alone have I wronged. He's referring to God. How, how is that? Because he recognizes the cosmic injustice and justice right before him. He says, I deserve to die. All the pain that I caused, I deserve. All the wrong and the selfishness, I deserve this. It's all coming my way. You know, it's a startling realization to come to when you realize all the pain we deserve. The death, that was mine. He stands Really, he's nailed in this place, and he sees Jesus for who he truly is, and he sees himself for what he owes. So often, what we do when we have a religious background is we come to Jesus, and we say, Jesus, thank you for, for saving me. Thank you for giving me salvation. Now, I've got it from here. From this point forward, Jesus, I'm going to do all the good deeds, work all the good works. I've got it. Thanks for that initial part. I'm good. And what that does to our psyche and our mentality is that this is what happens. It becomes a works-based religion instead of a gospel that says every day, I need Jesus. I need the man in the middle. I need the one that saved me from the thing that I could never earn, never do, never deserve. I need him. And what happens is we get this mentality where it's like, God, I've been really good. I got a seven-day streak on you version. Come on, Jesus. Oh, he loves me. Me and Jesus, BFFs, baby. Hashtag blessed. Come on. I see your Instagram posts. <laughs> we do it though, don't we? Jesus, we're good. And what happens when we get into a moment where there's pain and suffering, we become the judge. We say, God, you, you owe me. Where are you at? I've worked hard. I even tied the other week. Where are you at, Jesus? I really believe this, that God sent me here today to tell somebody that just because you're in pain doesn't mean that God doesn't care. That just because you're hurting doesn't mean that God doesn't hear you. God is trying to work something out in you. And we come to this spot where this, this thief comes to this realization. And what you gotta know, friend, is that you need to understand that you may not know the reasons or the circumstances for your situation, but you can still look to the cross in the middle of it. That while you may not know why, you can know that you're not alone because you and I, friends, we had a savior who was so serious about your situation and your suffering that he came to earth, put on a dirt suit we call humanity, and he went to the cross for you and for me. He said, I love you so much that I'm not gonna leave you in your suffering, I'm gonna come and take it on myself. 
that you would never have to pay the cosmic debt that you owe. Friend, that's how much he loves you. It's not our good deeds. Friends, it is our express need that brings us to the cross and we become followers and Christians. Friends, if you look, look at this LED wall for a moment here. We've got three crosses. There's one cross on the left-hand side. There's another cross on the right-hand side. Think for a moment, if you would, both men come from the same group. Both men have wronged people. Both men have murdered people. Both men have stolen. Both men have abused. One goes to hell, the other one goes to heaven. Am I missing something here? Nobody got off the cross and this guy didn't do any good deeds. This guy didn't get off the cross and have any sort of forgiveness. There was no penance on his part. There was no sacraments on his part. One goes to hell, the other one goes to heaven. What's happening? You see, the criminal on the cross who had earlier been railing at Jesus, he comes to this realization and he sees a man on the middle cross who in the midst of his deepest suffering and pain, he begins to forgive those that are mocking and abusing him. As the nails are crushed into his skin, he forgives and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He doesn't even say a good thing about him. He just says that they don't even know. God, would you forgive them? They don't understand. All he sees is cosmic injustice. How is this man being murdered? This man on the middle cross. The last point that we have today is how to receive Jesus. In humility, this man here nailed to the same piece of wood, he does something that is so powerful and yet at the same time so, so subtle. It's so easy. For many in our culture today, they would say, could it really be? Could it really be that easy? Look what he says in scripture, verse number 42. He says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I mean, it's, it's almost like a whisper, isn't it? Like, could you? Could you even? Could you, could you just remember me? I've seen you give forgiveness to all these people today, and I wonder, could you just remember me? Could I be added to that list of people that you've been forgiving? And what I love is that it's in this dire moment and he asks this such a powerful question. You're hanging on a cross with nothing that he can do, nowhere that he can go. He comes to the point of surrender that every follower of Jesus has to come to, to say, it's not my will, but your will's be done. I just wanna be with you. And he bows his criteria and expectations to the king of kings. Somebody here today, you need to bow your expectations to God. Somebody here, there's a mountain in front of you and you know exactly what it is. And yes, God wants to move the mountain, but more importantly, he wants to move that same mountain inside of you. 
and you're still there, God, take me off of it. Get it out of the way. But what I love about Jesus, how many know that Jesus, he always does exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine? This man, he says, would you just remember me? And look, look at the response of Jesus in this moment. Here it is in verse number 43. That's so powerful. He says, today, like, not, not once you work some things out, my man, not, not once you get your life in order, not once you start giving to the church and, you know, helping little old ladies across the street. No, 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 no. Not once that happens. He says, there's literally nothing that this guy can do. Here he is hanging on the tree. There's no sacrifice. There's no money, good works or deeds. Here he is, just a desperate man in need saying, would you remember me? And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. See, this word paradise, it's actually the word for garden. What Jesus is referencing here is the Garden of Eden. If you remember all the way back in Genesis chapter number one and two, it says that God used to walk with humanity in the cool of the day, that there was this relationship between God and man. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Even more importantly than that, Jesus is giving us a picture of completion. He says, what once was broken by sin will now be completed. What once the first Adam destroyed, the second Adam, myself, will redeem. What once separated you from God now no longer separates you. He says, we will once again have relationship. Friend, I don't know if you know this or not, but that's the, that same offer is offered not just 2,000 years ago, but it's offered to us today. Today. My mom, she's worked in the legal system for several decades. And um, for, the last, for the last several years, she's served a judge here in Springfield um, who's presided over a, a lot of cases, bringing justice to victims. Uh, here in the county. And for the last decade, she's served that judge. And with most judges, her boss, she's an incredibly decorated individual. A ton of accolades to her life. She was a pioneer for women in the workforce. Um, a decorated athlete, both in high school and in college. Uh, she's she's a, a shining example for a lot of people. But my mom would tell you she had a lot of conversations with her. and. For the majority of her life, she just was not interested in the agenda of God. She was gonna do her own thing. Well, my mom, being a Jesus follower, had a, several conversations about Jesus, and for the most part, uh, the topic was quickly bypassed by her boss. She would say, hey, you know, can I share with you about my faith? Can I share with you about Jesus? And again, kind of, hey, that's okay for you, Susie, but I've, you know, I, I've got my own thing going on here. That's great for you, but not really interested. But about a year ago, her friend and boss was diagnosed with cancer. And that's where everything began to change. My mom, she felt a new urgency to pray for her friend's salvation. A few months into the cancer diagnosis, my mom gave her a book on walking with God through pain. And the book shares about the gospel of Jesus and how you can find peace and hope even in the midst of your trial. 
Over the course of that year, the cancer persisted and her friend's health continued to deteriorate. For months, my mom asked us if we would pray for her friend and her boss, wanting her to know both the peace of Jesus and the salvation that he offered. And literally less than a week, or excuse me, less than a month ago, my mom received the news that her friend had died. My mom was heartbroken. She was devastated by the fact that she wasn't sure where her friend's eternity was. She had prayed all these years. She had talked to her, and she didn't know, God, where are you? Have you come through? A week went by, and the family came in to get some of the belongings from a friend and judge. And when they stopped by the office, they handed my mom a card. And on the card, it was an invite to the funeral, but it's also a card of essentially an obituary. My mom, she began to read the card. And in the card, it talked about her friend's accomplishments and her accolades, places she'd been, the people that she'd known. And then right there at the very end, the last page, the last paragraph, it reads this. She made Jesus her Lord and Savior the night before she passed. And there's a moment when you come to the end of your life and you're just desperate. There's no amount of accolades or accomplishments. You're just a person in desperate need and you need someone to accomplish what you couldn't. I think one of the very first people that'll greet my mom when she comes into eternity is her friend. She'll say something like, I can't believe it. Like, I, I can't believe it. Here I am. I, all I did, I just asked. I, I can't believe it. All I did, I, I lived my whole life with my own agenda, and all I did was say, God, I need you. I'm, I'm sorry. And, and, and he let me in. He let me be with him. Friend, could it be that there's a God with a love this scandalous, this wide, this deep, this vast, this high, this expansive, this welcoming, this inclusive that God would say, give me your sin, son. Give me your sin, daughter. Let me have it. Because I know that you're dying on the cross and all you need to do is just give that to me. This is the radical transformative grace of the gospel. That all we have to do is say we have need. I wonder how many here today that you've given up on what God wants to do in your life. That you've given up on praying for that friend. He said, they're too far gone. I've prayed for two, three, four, a decade. God isn't going to do anything. And today's your day. Today's the day you say, no, God, not on my watch. I'm coming back to you again. Maybe you're here today and you say, Ben, I don't have that relationship with God. I don't know him. I've been living my own way, but I want to. For today is your day. In fact, it says in Romans chapter number 10 and verse 9, it says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead, it says, you will be saved. That's it. That's the gospel. We just stand in this empty space of forgiveness saying, God, I've got nothing to bring. I got nothing but need. 
And Jesus says, come in, son. Come in, daughter. Today, you'll be with me.